Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Mazza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today, this is a special episode. I will take you with me on a trip, on a road trip, from Beersheba to Jerusalem. In general, this is a trip that takes around uh, an hour and 40 minutes at a good time, early in the morning, and it's about 120 kilometers long, around 70 miles. The trip is not an easy one, even though there's a motorway all the way from Beersheba to Jerusalem. Traffic, car accidents, congestion, and invisible lines that needs to be crossed, they all are part of the journey. So let's get started. I'm in Beersheba. And Beersheba is a very interesting place, actually, not many people know about it. Just a few years ago, uh, Beersheba got on the uh, sort of European chronicles, very much because of a football game, uh, when the giant Inter-AC Milan lost a game in Beersheba, in a game of Europa Cup. But other than that, it's often considered a neglected city in the periphery of southern Israel. Now, the history of Beersheba is a very interesting one. Bir Arsaba, Bir Saba in Arabic, is uh, in Beersheba is the Hebrew name of a city. It's today one of the largest cities in, um, in the southern part of Israel, in the Negev, and is becoming a very attractive city, very much because it's uh, getting better connected with the center, both Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, and the development of both the university Gurion University and also of an entire area dedicated to high-tech companies. But let's take a step back. So here I'm starting my drive and I'm just joining now road number 40 
uh, which will then turn into road number six. So I'm leaving now Beersheba behind me. And uh, as I mentioned, Beersheba goes back to biblical time. Really, we don't know much about it. It's mentioned in, uh, in a number of scripture, but many archeologists believe that actually the biblical site is what nowadays is called Tel Beersheba, um, which is a small town just a few kilometers away from the modern city. Now, the modern city of Beersheba was established by the Ottomans uh, towards the end of the 19th century. In the beginning of the 20th century, the Ottomans uh, realized that they needed some sort of a station in the desert in order to connect uh, uh, you know, Palestine with uh, other parts of the Ottoman Empire, and more importantly, to basically connect southern Palestine um, with the uh, uh, Suez Canal, so getting closer to the border with Egypt, that by then, by 1882, had been occupied by the British. The center is still uh, visible, you know, if you travel to Beersheba, uh, the old Ottoman city, unfortunately, has been neglected for decades, but you can certainly appreciate the Ottoman architecture and is now known as the old city. Around the old city, actually, you can see the old uh, Ottoman train station, and ironically, you get to see a statue of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk uh, by the train station next to a, an Israeli and a Turkish flag. As I've been to Beersheba many times, what I notice is that often the uh, Turkish flag disappears when the relationships between the two countries are at a lower point. And when things are back to normal, then the Turkish flag goes up. It's an interesting city, really. Not much has been written from an academic perspective. And as I said, Israelis too tend to neglect and forget Beersheba. It, it's often just uh, mentioned as that place far away than periphery, like many others, to be honest. What is Beersheba now? Now, it's, it's a city, uh, obviously, with the largest majority of uh, Jewish residents, which in 1948 was essentially taken over by Israeli forces. Uh, but before that, actually, I must say that Beersheba saw some fighting back uh, during World War I, when in fact the um, British-led Australian forces uh, in the famous Battle of Beersheba uh, took over the city from the Ottomans. Just a few years back, uh, the centennial was celebrated with a large presence of uh, uh, Australian, New Zealanders, as also British officials, uh, also with the reenactment other battles. And, you know, you can find all of this stuff on YouTube. There was a lot of attention. Uh, eventually, if you're around Beersheba, you also will find a, an Australian park uh, right in the middle of the city. But where things get complicated, uh, sorry, I'm actually struggling here a little bit on the traffic. So uh, well, things are complicated when we get to, you know, in 1948. So in 1948, what we have is what is known as the Battle of Beersheba, which took place in October of that year. And eventually the city was conquered by the Israel Defense Forces. Beersheba was taken over. It was uh, considered a strategic point, particularly because the Beersheba gave access to the rest of the uh, Negev area, which for Ben-Gurion was uh, uh, you know, some sort of his dream to develop uh, um, you know, Israel, uh, maybe n not everybody knows that in fact uh, uh, Ben-Gurion is buried 
just uh, a few miles outside uh, Bersheva, uh, in, in a small village, um, just out of uh, out of a city. And uh, and again, you can see this kind of connection. Uh, many should actually also remember that David Ben Gurion, uh, while he was born in Russia, actually migrated to uh, uh, Ottoman Palestine in 1907, and eventually was educated in Palestine. And you know, he took a degree in Istanbul, and he, and he got to know very well. Uh, the land of Palestine, and you know, for him, the desert was this sort of uh, avant-garde, where the new sort of uh, uh, Israeli, the new Jewish man, should have eventually uh, settled. Obviously, things went rather differently, but uh, you know, just to give you a sense also of the uh, importance of the city, particularly to the older generation of Zionists. Now, as I said, in 1948, the city was taken over by the Israeli forces, was occupied, the uh, local Palestinian population was essentially kicked out, and uh, drama following drama, once the Palestinians had been uh, essentially exiled, the city was used by the newly created State of Israel to accommodate Jews coming from uh, the Arab world, Mizrahi Jews. As many probably know, uh, you know, as a result of the state of uh, as a result of the creation of the state of Israel, Jews in a number of uh, Arab countries were expelled, uh, and eventually, you know, they moved into into Israel. But we have to deal with the fact that Israeli uh, back then were mostly European Jews, either survivors of the Holocaust or you know previously immigrated into Palestine, so Ashkenazi Jews who didn't really trust. Uh, Arab Jews. They didn't trust them because essentially they, they were Arabs and they many Ashkenazi Jews didn't see major differences between uh, you know these newly arrived uh, uh, immigrants and refugees and, and the Palestinians. And eventually it was decided to create uh, camps or to move these Mizrahi Jews into peripheral cities, so away from, from the center, away from Tel Aviv and away from uh, West Jerusalem. So, Beersheba became the center, largely inhabited by Mizrahi Jews. And you can still see that nowadays, even though there was a major change in the 1990s, at the very beginning of 1990, when um, there was this larger uh, wave of immigration from Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, where a number of Russian uh, Jews uh, moved uh, to Beersheba. Once again, you know, Russian Jews were re were basically allocated uh, places, either, you know, they were given new towns, but they were also moved into these uh, uh, peripheral uh, cities like Beersheba. And nowadays you can see that. I mean, most of the supermarkets are run by Russians uh, or, you know, uh, medical clinics. And, uh, you know, the rest of the city essentially is a Mizrahi uh, city with a large presence and a growing presence of uh, um, Arab Bedouins, um, they normally live in the surrounding, but slowly, slowly they're moving into the city and certainly work in the city of Beersheba. But it must be said that there are actually no synagogues. There used to be the Ottoman synagogue, but it has been transformed into a museum. So in fact, for you know Muslim residents of Beersheba, this is a major issue. Beersheba is also home, as I said, to Ben-Gurion University, which is a, you know, fairly big university. And I must say that in the recent uh, years, probably in the last two decades, saw 
uh, a growing number of uh, Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel enrolling into, uh, you know, different courses, and particularly from Bedouin towns. One that I'm actually approaching right now as I'm driving through the traffic and I'm already a few kilometers out of uh, uh, Beersheba. The surrounding of Beersheba is quite impressive. It's all desert. Um, and the moment you get out of the city, like right now, uh, you know, you, you can see uh, Bedouins driving off the roads um, and taking the carols around, uh, uh, you know, sort of the, 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 the hills. And um, yeah, so we, I'm approaching the a big junction where there are plenty of roadworks. So, you know, perhaps I'm going to take a break, listen a little bit to the radio before the next step, which is Rah. Just open the window a little bit. I'm getting to the junction and stuck in traffic. It's a little bit of noise, as usual. And here I am. Now, on my left side is the uh, town of Rahat, but on the right side, there is this, uh, you know, entirely Jewish uh, city, town, actually, better say, of uh, Le'avim. Uh, it's a village, Le'avim. You know, it's a very wealthy uh, uh, village, uh, which was uh, founded in 1983. Um, it has a small population. I think there are no more than seven, maybe 8,000 people. And uh, as I said, it's one of those towns created, uh, you know, to accommodate wealthy uh, Israelis who often commute. In fact, there is a, the train station is just around the corner and it serves both Le'ahavim and uh, uh, Rahat. Now, Rahat is, you know, a very interesting place. Rahat is a, is a Bedouin uh, city. Uh, which didn't exist basically until uh, um, the 1970s, if I remember well. And, and uh, you know, before that, there was a town called uh, El Uzail, um, and eventually the name was changed into Rahat. Uh, Rahat is essentially a collection of Bedouin tribes. I, I love to go around Rahat. I personally know a few people there, a couple of scholars working at uh, Ben Gurion, and you know, it's this fascinating place which was eventually you know, brought together uh, following Israeli policies where they tried to basically settle the nomads, uh, forcing them into, into becoming you know, fully residential. And at the same time, Rahat developed opportunities. Uh, so it's always complicated here to judge. Certainly there's an element of force, but there's also an element of providing opportunities, particularly for women. Uh, Rahat is fairly famous for that, and um, you know a number of projects have uh, uh, been developed there, and uh, of cooperations between different groups, and you know giving opportunities, and uh, uh, also some Palestinians uh, NGOs work there. Uh, obviously, Palestinian NGOs are part of the state of Israel. Uh, and it is always complicated, and I do apologize in advance. Uh, you know, while driving, it's a, a little bit hard to find sometimes the right words to use. Um, but yeah, I mean, the point about Rahat is that it, it is the city that was created in 1972 and it has, uh, you know, just a number of neighborhoods and basically the neighborhoods do represent the various tribes. Some of them are mixed, but for the most part, the, the neighborhoods are there to represent uh, these um, different Bedouin tribes. 
the, the town is very close to Beersheba. And as I said earlier, m- most of the people living in Rahat do actually work in Beersheba. Berhat eventually be- became a, a household name, not only around Israel, but in many other countries, when the famous story uh, of um, Soda Stream, which was uh, picked out essentially of the West Bank, uh, opened up a new plant in Rahat. But l- l- let me give you a little bit of a background here. So Soda Stream is probably this company that you all know, uh, producing these machines that add um, basically CO2 to, uh, you know, water. <laughs> and you can do a- any any soda drink you want. And uh, originally this company was based in the West Bank and it was based on, a, uh, you know, basically it was built on, um, on an illegal settlement. Uh, and it received a lot of attention. You know, the company was very successful. And at the same time, I must say that also the BDS movement, so the boycott this investment sanction movement, uh, started a strong campaign uh, against uh, you know similar companies. Now the the, the leaders of SodaStream kind of admitted that BDS played some role, but obviously they, they didn't say that. The reason why they left the West Bank was in fact the BDS. But I, I feel fairly confident to say that the BDS played a major role in you know, moving uh, the factory from the original location in Mishora Dumemin, which is an illegal Jewish settlement in the occupied West Bank, to Rahat. Now, why they moved, and here this is another side of the story, uh, you know, obviously they, they tried to guarantee the, you know, the jobs to the Palestinians working there, but eventually, you, you know, the reality is that it's very hard for those Palestinians to cross the border of the West Bank, which they would do, geographically speaking, not far away from here, where you get the road uh, leading to Hebron. And it's literally just a couple of minutes from here, uh, from where I'm driving. Only a few of them eventually were uh, given a permit, but more importantly, they found the energy to go across everyday checkpoints. And I think this is a very important point twilight. On the other hand, the new factory provided jobs for the people of Rahat, for Bedouins, in particular women. I- I'm not here to judge, to question. I know there's a lot of questions about it, uh, but I'm taking it from a perspective of, uh, of a few people, as I said, that I know there, and they saw this move as problematic, but at the same time as an opportunity. Uh, you know, young Bedouins, particularly male, they found themselves literally sandwiched in between a very patriarchal and close culture and also Israeli control. And uh, often, you know, when people complain that Bedouins are running fast, uh, uh, you know, with their cars uh, around the area, and it's true, I mean, you know, probably I'm going to bump into some of them uh, right now, uh, the criticism must be understood. I mean, the point is that they really found themselves like sandwich, you know, completely compressed into these forces. And eventually, you know, this is a way for them to express themselves, also to express their rage uh, out of all of that control. And and also you can see that with the control over women. And, and that's why this project of so the opening a factory of soda stream in Rahat for many was very important, just to give women a possibility to get out of a form of control. Yet the problem remains there. There are also problems related to uh, accessibility uh, and also questions related to, uh, you know, 
the fact that uh, still, you know, this is a Bedouin town, neglected. Uh, they don't get the same services as, you know, Leavim, which is just a few kilometers away. Um, you know, not the same level of uh, uh, infrastructures in terms of roads, parks. Uh, these, these are whole elements that have to be highlighted. I mean, uh, we can't uh, just uh, hide behind, oh, look, soda stream opening right, this is good, and that's it. A lot of problem remains in that. And, uh, you know, the junction's now behind me, and uh, uh, the last few years, essentially, road number 40 now joining into road number 6 has been fully, um, I don't know, what, how would you say that? Like, it, it's made into a highway. And so there are no longer like exits. So I can still see uh, right now, really, uh, the um, couple of gas stations that now are no longer directly connected to the road, but you need to leave the number six in order to get to them. Um, still, so I'm now driving and uh, I guess the next uh, city I'm going to bump into before taking road number three and eventually road number one taking me to Jerusalem is the city of uh, Kiryat Gat, which is another fascinating story. And so let's see, you know, just uh, let's take a break for another couple of minutes, listen to some of radio DJ music and see what they have to say. Okay, okay, so I'm getting close to Kiryat Gat, so let's turn off the radio. And um, so the next step, as I said, is this city um, of Kiryat Gat. Now, Kiryagat is, is a new city, to be honest. Uh, I mean, it existed somehow in a different form and not really in the same area as it is nowadays. Um, so Kiryagat was, uh, I think, created in the 1950s. Um, and it had a different name, a Mahabara or something like that. And, and again, like, like Beersheba, um, the, the city was created in order to accommodate uh, Moroccan families. So it's quite it's quite interesting if you if you you know if you're into accents, how you know you you go through Kiryat Gat and uh, the the Hebrew they speak is heavily heavily uh, you know directed towards that that accent, and um, you know the city was eventually founded um, on top of the ruins of a, of a village which was uh, again depopulated in 1949, Irak al um, even though Irak al remains in the outskirts of, of the main center. Eventually, Kiryat Gat saw uh, some form of expansion, again, through the 1990s, the arrival of Russian Jews after the collapse of, of the Soviet Union. And I, I think nowadays is in the region of like maybe 60,000 people or so. Um, what, what I found interesting is that, first of all, they call it Kiryat Gat using you know, the, a, an ancient name, um, Gat, which basically was the name of a Philistine city, um, in a sense was again to create like historical connection. But I, I must say that one of the most fascinating things about uh, Kiryat Gat is that uh, in the last uh, decade or so, there have been a large number of excavation. And, and I think some archaeologists were trying to find uh, ruins in order to prove like uh, some sort of a Jewish presence. You know, sometimes archaeology in Israel works in that way. Uh, but they ended up actually excavating amazing Byzantine churches, and uh, there is a great Byzantine um, mosaic that it was found in, in Kiryat Gat. So, uh, you know, sometimes you end up finding what, what you don't want 
you know, in general, again, Kiryat got very much like Beersheba. Beersheba is one of these uh, neglected uh, peripheral uh, cities of, of Israel uh, with a, you know, high degree of uh, uh, unemployment, uh, sort of a lot of people are commuting either towards Tel Aviv or towards um, Ashkelon and Ashdod, working in the port cities or, you know, working south um, in, in Beersheba. Th there is some signs now that Kiryat is sort of uh, moving forward, but uh, yeah, it, it remains a very peripheral city of, of Israel. In, in the southern part of Israel. Uh, you know, just outside Kiryat Gat then eventually there is this uh, junction of these roads, um, which uh, uh, yeah, I count to be there in, in just just a few minutes possibly. There's a bit of traffic around Kiryat Gat in general. It's a, it's, it's a congested uh, area. There's a lot of trucks moving up and down. There are a few junctions, again, junctions with uh, um, Ashdod, Ashkelon, but also the road uh, going into the uh, occupied territories in, in, in Hebron. Uh, they're all around here. So you get a lot of traffic around here. Um, unfortunately, a lot of accidents too, which is you know, uh, one of the major issues in Israel are uh, really road accidents, plenty. And unfortunately, many are deadly. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, people just paying too much attention to the phone. I mean, uh, uh, in order to record this, I placed everything safely, but in the end, I can see people around, uh, uh, you know, moving with the phones and stuff. So definitely not a safe one. So yeah, slowly, slowly, I'm making my way to road number three, um, just a few kilometers ahead. Uh, you know, taking road number three, essentially, it will take me just across uh, the hills and getting closer to Jerusalem. And um, essentially, I, I will avoid going through, um, you know, Ramla and Lodz, other very interesting places. Uh, the Nasher factory, this huge monster, very close to the junction with number one. So yeah, I'm getting close to what, um, you know, to this junction, uh, which eventually will take me to road number one. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We are going to take a short break. Thank you for listening. And remember to join our Facebook page, Twitter, and Instagram account. If you have a story about Jerusalem that you want to share, or someone that you want me to interview, please get in touch. Enjoy the rest of the show. Okay, I'm here at the Sorek uh, Junction, so I'm getting, you know, number three. Okay, this is going to be like one of those things that only maybe a few people can get, but there is a very, very interesting place. There is a military base uh, on the right side, and it's called Tal Shahar. Now, I'm going to make you like one of those like uh, educated guesses. I don't know if you're a Trekkie, if you like Star Trek, like I do. But in, in Star Trek, you have these, uh, you know, people called the Romulans. And, uh, the, you know, the Romulans are you know, essentially bad guys, I'd say. And, uh, you know, sort of a militarized society. I guess he's the creator of Star Trek. Have looked at Israel for that, but and nevertheless, the name is very interesting because it reminds the name of the secret police of the Romulan, uh, the Tal Shiar. Uh, and, and here it is, a base uh, Tal Shahar. I, I just wonder if there's any connection. You know, in the end, the writers sometimes take, uh, you know, they they are sort of uh, inspired by real name, and you know, sometimes they make connections that maybe nobody. You know, no one's gonna look at, and then all of a sudden I'm driving by this base, and then I think about it. Hey, it really sounds like you know, but maybe I'm wrong. But if anyone listening, maybe has some I don't, I don't know information about it, that's, please let me know. I'd be very curious to see whether this was actually used as a basis for the name of you know that secret police. So I'm in a junction, and uh, I'm going to cross the green line. Basically, uh, what's going to happen right now, I'm just going to cross one of the numerous lines that I will cross on my way to uh, to Jerusalem. So the Armistice Agreement Line, uh, also known as Green Line, because basically, uh, you know, it was drawn with a, with a green pen. And I'm getting close to a, a place which is, you know, fascinating, but with a dramatic history, La Trouve. There's a big junction here. There's going to be a little bit of traffic. Probably I'm going to stuck, be stuck for a few minutes. And uh, let me see. I'm just going to open one second the window so that you get the sense of it. Rats, chikers, thinking, you know, the usual. Sorry, but um, there will be plenty of this in Jerusalem. La Trune so many things to say about it you know every time I, I'm driving around here I have really mixed feelings and sometimes I stop 
because in Latrun, on my right side, you know, driving uh, essentially north, there is this uh, monastery, a Trappist monastery, which is beautiful. But right in front of a Trappist monastery, you have uh, a Tagar fort. Essentially, a Tagar fort was a police fort that was built during the British mandate and now serves as the basis of, a, you know, a, an Israeli unit. And uh, I must say that a few times driving around the Independence Day, I, I, I just stopped and uh, stared at all of these tanks that were like uh, parked out of the uh, base and you know with all of these kids play on tanks i mean militarization of society is not unique to israel uh but it makes you wonder it makes you wonder a lot you know just to be around tanks essentially what does teach what does this teach to kids but anyway let's go back to latrun so latrun is this um, hilltop uh, and it's literally in between the roads you know leading to Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, so it's very close to Jerusalem. It's at the beginning of the hills. Um, and in 1948, Latrun was the, uh, the site of a huge and very fierce fight between the Jordanian forces and the, uh, the Zionist forces. And eventually, you know, the area was occupied by Jordanian forces and it became a no man's land. Uh, th that's why Latrun is literally in the middle. Um, you know, this tiny sort of area. And um, in, in 67, eventually, was captured by Israeli uh, forces who occupied, you know, the rest uh, of, um, of, of the area. Uh, as I said, now there is this uh, Trappist Abbey. There is a mini Israel park right the other side. I, I've never been, honestly, and uh, I don't really plan to go ever. I just, I don't know. I'm not a fan of that. And I found that the whole place is so complicated that even placing a mini Israel is, you know, is, is, is a further complication to that. Um, you know, Latrun is, is an interesting place. And I always tell people that, you know, they should stop. The monastery offers, like, amazing views. Uh, it has its history on its own. Um, and I think also, you know, it gives you, like, this uh, sense of the road that you're going to now take. Because once, once you pass the monastery, then basically I'm going to turn right. And uh, that's the road to Jerusalem, number one, which again is set on essentially on the same green line that I said earlier. Uh, you know, the, the, this is a period, sorry, this is a place where there's a lot of history around here. You know, if you, actually, if you drive straight, you, you bump into other, other historical places. But uh, as I said, I. I'm fascinated by Latrun. It, it used to be also the sites of a Crusader castle. Um, and, you know, just as I said, it's not far away from Emmaus, the famous uh, biblical, uh, you know, town where, according to the traditions, these two uh, Jews, uh, you know, left uh, Jerusalem after Jesus died. They were not aware of the resurrections and eventually Jesus showed up to them. So it's all in this area. So there's a lot of stuff to see there. But it's also, you know, an area that saw a lot of fighting, particularly in 1947, 1948. Uh, so the monastery is relatively new, actually. It's been built in, in the late 19th century. Uh, and, you know, the, the Ottoman uh, used, the Ottomans used Latrun during World War I. Um, but eventually, you know, it returned to be a, a monastery after the war. So the monks went back. 
as I said, what is interesting is that right in front of uh, the monastery, you have this uh, Taggart police fort. And there are quite a few around. Many have been converted to um, for other uses. But that, that's another interesting story. So during the uh, Arab revolt between 36 and 39, the British began to build police forts uh, named after Taggart, who basically designed these forts. And um, you know, the idea was to place these uh, police stations, 45 police stations in key areas of Palestine and, you know, in order to control uh, people, mostly Palestinians, but also to control uh, Zionist forces. Uh, and so, you know, you get to see one of them right here in Latrun. So, as I said, you know, also the Battle of Latrun is widely described in many works and, and essentially because this is like the way to Jerusalem. Also, you, you get to see how this was a, a very important battle. Um, and, and eventually this is where the, the, the Jordanian and, and Zionist forces like sort of uh, stopped. Uh, even though uh, Zionist forces managed to get in, you know, through what nowadays is road number one, very close to Jerusalem, you know, up to uh, the borders with the old city. So, here I am, obviously there's a lot of things about road number one, uh, which eventually, you know, was also known as Burma Road. Um, but I, I, I really, I'm just going to focus drive now, because if you have ever been driving on road number one, despite the fact that it's been enlarged, so it's now three lanes, it's not an easy drive, you know, there's a lot of bends, it's uh, both up and down, and again, traffic, traffic, and, you know, people just driving really fast, and sometimes... Uh, Pay more attention to their phone so yeah I, i'm just gonna you know focus on the drive and then uh, see if i can give you some more information about uh, what's going on the roads so i'm on number one and um, actually i just remembered that I, i'm i'm driving close to a, a fascinating place uh, abu gosh uh, abu gosh is an arab israeli uh, town just you know a few kilometers before Jerusalem, I think it's about 10 kilometers, six miles or so west of Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, the name is basically called out of a, I think it was like Kriyat Alinab, something like that. Uh, it's a mixed town. I mean, it, it has a lot of, uh, uh, you know, history, also the presence of Christian communities, been there for a long time. Um, and it's definitely considered one of the earliest areas of human inhabitation in Israel and Palestine. And, you know, there are like uh, uh, plenty of archaeological excavations in the areas suggesting that there have been people around at least for 7,000 years or so. So certainly a very, a very, very interesting place uh, just to visit. Uh, also the Romans actually had a station in, in Abu Ghosh. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just on the way and sometimes I realized that there's so many fascinating places on the way to Jerusalem and you know just like uh, because of driving I, I I forget about them but uh yeah you know just it's 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 right there and it's as I said it's uh, Abu Ghosh control certainly under the Ottomans the, the route from Jaffa to Jerusalem and essentially pilgrims had to go through them and it's also one of the reasons why you have churches there because there was a Christian presence and you know Basically, these Christians uh, uh, living in Abu Ghosh would provide services for the pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem. 
during the British mandate, if I remember well, you know, eventually the, the Abu Ghosh grew in size, and eventually, again, in, you know, it suffered obviously uh, because of the war of forty-seven and forty-eight. The history of the city tells us that, you know, during the war, Abu Ghosh essentially was the only uh, Muslim village that remained neutral. Uh, and, you know, the road was open for convoys. Uh, again, I, I'm not going here to, to judge anybody or, you know, what people did and what they chose to do. But eventually, you know, Abu Ghosh uh, became a mixed uh, city after 1948. Um, still, you know, after the creation of the State of Israel, Abu Ghosh was often subjected to searches. Um, you know, obviously the IDF didn't really trust the people there. Uh, they, you know, thought that there would be infiltrators from the Jordanian side. And so it was not an easy life for villagers of, of Abu Ghosh. And, uh, you know, some now talk about Abu Ghosh as a model of coexistence. I... Ooh, I need to breathe about this. I, I don't know. I, I have, you know, my own views, but certainly it's true. I mean, communities do coexist fairly well in, in Abu Ghosh. So perhaps it, it might be a model, but as I said, I'm not in, I'm not in a position to judge. I'm just driving through and, I, you know, I, I don't want to take any position on this. So I keep driving. There's a bit of traffic, lots of bends. Uh, often Abu Ghosh is the site also of uh, wildfires. And today, as I'm driving, there were quite a few, or at least uh, smaller, but uh, as I was listening to um, some news earlier, um, I heard that there might be uh, problems. Now, I'm getting close to uh, villages that were established, particularly after 48, to accommodate uh, you know, uh, new Israeli settlers in the area. And uh, here I am getting very close to you know, the end of road number one, which essentially then goes, uh, keeps going and it moves into, well, you know, it moves into the West Bank eventually, uh, up to Maladumim, which is one of these um, uh, settlements, illegal settlements in, in the West Bank. Well, I think it's, it's the largest one. So I'm, I'm gonna leave number one and take this new road, which is named after Begin. And uh, this is gonna be the sort of a new road, uh, providing access to uh, to the city center and also the, the, the old city of Jerusalem. It's a majestic new road, in fairness, because there is the new uh, sort of a train line, so there is this amazing bridge on top. And at the same time, I'm going to go and drive past Lifta. Lifta is, you know, one of those amazing uh, Palestinian villages which was depopulated in 1947, 1948, essentially it was cleansed. And, uh, you know, some refer to uh, Lifta as a Palestinian Pompeii. I, I'm not so sure I would use this because uh, um, Pompeii was depopulated as a result of a natural disaster, but Lifta was depopulated as a result of a human choice and war. But it's here, it's here on my right side. So I'm actually pleased there's a bit of traffic so I can look at the houses. And so Lifta nowadays is uh, fully embedded into the city of Jerusalem. And, um, it, it, you know, it's this old ancient town, which 
existed at least since the Iron Age, definitely through the Roman and Byzantine periods, uh, also the Crusader and obviously through the Ottoman uh, era. Um, Liftons were very uh, proud uh, of, of their own uh, village. I, I remember reading a lot of material, particularly related to the early 1920s. Uh, you know, maybe by then, a small village of about 1,000 people or so, uh, probably a little bit more, I really should have remembered while I was preparing this drive. Um, but certainly I remember that in, in 1929, the, the Liftons played a role in the, you know, the events that took place. I, I'm going to use the word massacres. You know, massacres were perpetrated on both sides. But to me, well, as a historian, I remember clearly that Liftons moved to Jerusalem and played a major role, also because they felt their village was uh, under threat and they acted as villagers. Now, by 1948, the village actually had some, you know, was developing. Uh, I remember reading there were like coffee houses, you know, not many, still very, very tiny, um, you know, a few shops here and there. But eventually, it is again, because it was located on the road leaving Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. So basically the road that I was just driving on, uh, Jewish forces eventually, you know, evacuated the Arab uh, uh, people, the Palestinians, women and children, and eventually they, they you know, sort of placed their own command over there. Uh, quite interestingly, it was never repopulated. And, you know, there are a lot of stories about it. The, the uh, you know, Lifta was, uh, was left on its own. And despite, you know, a few houses were blue, um, but eventually it was abandoned. And uh, that's it. And essentially, you, you know, really, uh, between 1945 and 2021, you can walk around Lifta and um, some sort of jump back in time. I, I sometimes don't like these kind of expressions, but here it is. It's a ghost town. And you get all of a sense of, uh, you know, a Palestinian village which was cleansed in 1948. It was used, if I remember well. Uh, for some Jewish refugees, which were hosted, uh, you know, in Lifta during the war in 48. But eventually, uh, you know, the living conditions were very difficult. Also, the place badly connected. And um, so and the, the buildings suffered from the war. Um, so, you know, lack of sanitation, lack of electricity. So, you know, basically, uh, the, the Jewish inhabitants that were placed in Lifta chose to leave a few few years later. So it remains this um, sort of nat nature reserve as the 1980s was declared. Uh, but for me, it also remains a, a ghost town. And the ghosts are very much those of the Palestinians that were expelled in 1948. And now, obviously, there's all issue about plans. Uh, they were announced, I think, in 2011 or so to demolish the village and uh, rebuild the luxury development. But eventually there were legal petitions. And so at, at the moment, all of these plans are, have been rejected or at least opposed. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully there will be organizations that are going to save the houses of Lifta. And even though it would be hard to say that they're going to give back to the Palestinians, original inhabitants, but at least to keep it 
as a memory of, of that. So I'm getting close, and obviously now I am stuck in traffic. And so while it took me just one hour to get uh, to the outskirts of Jerusalem, now it's going to take me at least 40 minutes to get to my final destination, which is a parking lot in East Jerusalem, right in front of a YMCA. And that's going to be my uh, final destination in, in this drive. Now, before I get there, <laughs> as I said, yes, I, I need to go through a number of neighborhoods. Now, the new road essentially is, is basically designed to take me through mostly Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods. Uh, and, and eventually, it's a shortcut, honestly. It's, uh, it's kind of convenient. Uh, but again, you, I, I'm just going across lines, lines of different neighbors, once again across the, the green line, so back and forth this line. Uh, and some of the oldest Jewish Orthodox neighborhood, you know, very close to Mea Sharim, essentially, Bukharian, the Bukharian quarter, so Jews that came from uh, Bukhara in, in, in Uzbekistan. And, and eventually, you know, Shmuel Hanavi, so, uh, I'm just going to drive through that. Uh, it's not an easy drive. Roads here are a little bit uh, narrower. There's a lot of traffic. You just have to pay attention to people walking, crossing the streets. And, and eventually, I will just get out of uh, right in front of uh, uh, what is the American colony and you know just cross into uh, East Jerusalem, so east of the Green Line. So OK, they keep talking here on the Italian radio. And uh, slowly, slowly, uh, I, I'm here. I'm here. I'm, you know, it's a slow drive. So I am um, just crossing, um, you know, these, uh, I would say, ultra-Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods. Uh, you know, Google Maps just uh, takes you through here. Um, and here I am, right right in front of the, the American colony. So now I'm going to take uh, uh, St. George Street. Now, what is interesting here is that in front of the American colony hotel, you have a set of hotels that were all being built in this no-man's land. And I'm here in Sheikh Jarrah. So, you know, these neighborhoods have been at the center of uh, the recent uh, flare-up of uh, violence. Jewish settlers, you know, trying to take over Palestinian houses here in East Jerusalem. So behind me, there's, there's you know, this area, which is fascinating. I mean, Sheikh Jarrah is a very fascinating history. It was uh, this uh, neighborhood that was built mainly by uh, wealthy Muslim Jerusalemite resident at the end of the 19th century, and also then later on some uh, uh, Christian Palestinians joined uh, their fellow Jerusalemites in this uh, very nice area, in the, right on the hill, uh, you know, looking over the, the city. And uh, you also have uh, this very famous uh, Jewish site, the tomb of uh, Shimon Tzaddik, this uh, Jewish prophet. Quite interestingly also, some Jews settled down here at the beginning of the 20th century, some coming from what well, nowadays is Iraq or Kuwait, you know, they were Ottomans, so they obviously moved freely through the Ottoman Empire. Some were wealthy, bought uh, uh, properties or mostly rented properties from, you know, local Jerusalemites. Uh, but you also had the arrival of some uh, very poor Jews from Yemen who found refuge in, in the land owned by the American colony. Um, obviously, the situation nowadays is rather different, and uh, uh, you know, uh, particularly after '67, uh, after you know, the city was uh, taken by Israeli forces, you had the, the drive by a number of uh, Israeli settlers to 
use the law, a law that applies only to Jews and Israelis, uh, to retake some of the properties there. Now, what it, you know, this is a legal battle, but it's obviously bigger than a real estate problem. I mean, it would be just, uh, you know, unfair to say that this is an issue about houses. It's bigger than that. But I, I'm not going into it. I'm just going to try to end this uh, uh, drive where I, you know, try to give you a sense of uh, where I am and the history of this place. And finally, finally, I'm getting to the parking lot. So I, I've been driving through uh, Nablus Road, uh, first uh, St. George's, and then Nablus Road, and here I am at the parking lot. It, there's a lot of things here. Uh, you know, the parking lot is essentially behind now what is the uh, district court, so full Israeli presence in the area. I'm close to an Armenian ceramics uh, shops, famous Baelian, and, you know, in front of the uh, uh, YMCA here in Jerusalem. So I'm going to park the car, and my next stop is in East Jerusalem. But um, I hope, I hope you, you know, you enjoyed this drive with a sort of plenty of historical information. And also, uh, it was nice to feel that you are driving with me in this drive. And if you ever a chance to make a similar drive, you know, think about uh, what's next to you. There's, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of issues while driving. So thank you, thank you. I, I hope you're enjoying this uh, special episode of Jerusalem Unplugged. And uh, see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Jerusalem Unplugged. This podcast is currently commercial free. There are no ads. The only possibility to stay this way is for you to please let your friends, your family and others who may be interested in listening to Jerusalem Unplugged know about this podcast. Let's increase the audience and let's keep the podcast commercial free. Thank you for listening. Until the next one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.